Hello, Brent. Travis, it's a bonus episode for our donors. For our donor boners. Donus bonus. We've done it. Well, first, let me say this. Thank you, everyone, so, so much for being a Maximum Fun donor. If you're listening to this, you are a donor. And this is our first year as a Maximum Fun show. This is our first Max Fun Drive. And we're so, so excited that you could join us. Um, it feels really, really awesome to be supported and to know that you guys care about the show. Yeah, so thank we appreciate you. it a lot. You guys are keeping us afloat, making it even more fun to do a thing that we already find to be pretty fun. So huge thanks from the bottom of our hearts and our donus bonus boners. Um, we love it. I, I wanted to start by uh, giving you guys a little little insight into some behind-the-scenes stuff that we don't normally talk about on the show proper. Because, you know, you guys deserve it. You're the donors. And one You're thing special, I special, damn it. Yeah, one thing I wanted to mention in kind of a behind-the-scenes way is um, the theme song to this show was not actually originally conceived as the theme song for Trends Like These. See, as you probably noticed, Travis is on another podcast with his brothers called My Brother, My Brother and Me, and they were investigating the possibility of doing some animated shorts on YouTube for which they would need a theme song. So I wrote the, initially the tune that you hear uh, as one of our interstitials, it's usually the slower one that goes like, do 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 It's got like a heavy kind of slightly more hip hoppy beat in the background. That was like the first draft of that. Um, and, you know, that didn't end up happening the way that we thought it would. And so it just sat on the shelf. But when Travis was like, hey, let's do a, let's do a news podcast. Let's do an internet trends podcast. I was like, well, what if I made that a little bit newsier? So anyway, little fun fact for you. Donor types. I have another fun fact. I have another uh, historical fun fact, um, which it works out well because before we get too much further, this episode is going to be kind of uh, both a retrospective and a prospective, I guess, uh-huh. of looking back at some former trends and what we think might be some upcoming trends. Um, but I think it was about like 2008. Brent and I were hanging out in Cincinnati for our friend Sarah's wedding. And I remember us having like this long, long conversation in which I, um, w- just kept asking Brent, like, when he was going to get a real job because like making YouTube videos seemed like such a waste and not a real job and not a thing, like that nobody really works on the internet and that's not a real thing. It's one thing if you're like a journalist, but just to make videos and sit. And now flash forward uh, eight years to when he is still doing that. And now I am making content on the internet for a living. And I thought that this whole internet thing was a real trend. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, like, can't win them all. I We, we both thought Donald Trump was going to get knocked out really early on from the Republican nomination. And I mean, you know, you just can't always, you can't always predict things. But interestingly... I want to point out too, uh, in 2000, I think it was also 2000, maybe 2009. Yeah. Uh, Travis on a phone call with me just was like, Hey man, you know, we should really do a podcast. And I was like, what? Nah, that's not what I do, man. I, I don't, I'm not interested, but thanks. And then like within, I think honestly a month or two, uh, my brother, my brother and me started up and, had this meteoric rise to fame and stardom. And I was like, Oh, why didn't I take the chance when I had it? Anyway, that, um, that actually is, is a great transition. Um, a great sequitur into our first story. Oh yeah. Yeah. So basically what made me think of that is we're going to talk about MySpace. And the first fun fact that uh, I was struck by researching a little bit of, like, the rise and fall of MySpace is there was a point very early on. Let me pull up the date here. In February 2005, the parent company of MySpace um, was in talks with Mark Zuckerberg to acquire Facebook, but rejected um, but rejected it because of the $75 million asking price. Man. Yeah. Womp, womp. Indeed. Did you have MySpace, Brent? I know you did. Don't even bother answering the question. I mean, what are you trying to hide? I did, but to be honest with you, I'm trying as we speak to log into my old MySpace page. Yeah. I signed up in 2005, it would have been. And I don't think it, I don't think they hung on to. 
Well, no, your, I have, your page still exists. Because well, it says I have reached the limit for login attempts. Uh, so whatever. I was oh, surprised. you know what? I bet I was using. I bet I was using a different email address at the time. You know what? I so I got it. really curious when I was looking this up, and I went on MySpace and searched Travis McRoy and found my old account through a search. And I cannot, for the life of me, remember even the email address I would have used. But my top eight, in case anyone was curious, Brent is in my top eight, or was at the time. Our mutual friend Hillary Couch was in my top eight. Sarah Clark was in my top eight. My friend Christina was in my top eight. My older brother Justin was in my top eight. Michael Bradbury was in my top eight. Uh, Justin Gardner was in the top eight. And my friend Beth was in the top eight. Griffin apparently didn't make the cut. <laughs> <laughs> you know, okay, if you go to myspace.com slash music, there's a page that I can't even tell you if this page was my idea. It has some songs of mine. Seems like these songs were like circa 2010, but... uh Well, that's the thing. That's the thing that you... I didn't remember from being a consumer at the time, but now looking back completely makes sense to me that... It was a huge music and musicians resource. Right. That MySpace gained a lot of its uh, foothold because it was a place where not only could you, like, pin a song to your MySpace page that played every time somebody looked at your page, so it was a great way for musicians to kind of get their music played, but also that people distributed music. R.E.M. distributed an album through MySpace. Wow. Yeah. Um, and it's shit like that that's like, oh, yeah, that's right. Well, okay, so here's a little background. First of all, I'm going to dispel a myth that I did not realize. Did you know that MySpace is not really a startup? Um, I guess I never thought of it as a startup, but tell me more. Well, so it got a lot of credibility as this, like, startup, blah, blah, blah. Really what it is, is there was a parent company called E-Universe, um, and from what I could find, E-Universe was basically like a spam kind of company before spam was like illegal before. Now we think of that as like, well, yeah, but like who does spam? They did spam. Um, and there were some employees that used Friendster, which is even more. Oh, an yeah. Trend. Friendster. Yeah. They had Friendster accounts and they were like, we could do this. There's potential in this. So in August 2003, the group decided to mimic the more popular features of Friendster, and within 10 days, the first uh, version of MySpace was launched. Um, it, so the interesting thing is, when you think of like MySpace Tom, yeah. that was the starting president, but really the driving force behind it was Brad Greenspan and Chris DeWolf. Hmm. Um, Greenspan was the chairman and CEO. Chris was the starting CEO. Um, and then Tom was MySpace's starting president. Interesting. Uh, um, mostly at first, the first MySpace users were all E-Universe employees. Um, and then E-Universe had 20 million users at its disposal. Um, so that's basically how they started up yeah. MySpace, is that they used that 20 million existing E-Universe users and kind of like flooded myspace with them i just remember it being cool because it was an easy way to have your own little website hub yeah back when that was a thing that required coding like this is before squarespace before bandzoogle before uh all of these you know easy do-it-yourself website builders and uh so it was cool for that even if so many people just had like garish you know floods of unicorn gifs and little skeletons and the man digging for like you know construction which there were a lot of construction. Those. Yeah. Um, back in the day. Yes. I just said back in the day. Oh, I, just... I see. I thought you, I thought that was going to be back in the day, comma. And then nope, nothing nope. followed. Um, I, I, so think, I g- think I should have said back in the day, ellipsis. Um, so uh, to give you a little bit of a timeline, right? This was August 2003. Um, and then in February 2004, the Facebook.com launches. Um, in June 2004, MySpace breaks the 1 million unique visitors per month. August, October 2004, REM posts album to MySpace. December 2004, uh, you could get three, uh, da- you could download three songs from pop singer Hilary Duff for free from her page. Um, 
And January 2005, MySpace hits a phase of exponential growth, gaining millions and millions of members in the first half of the year. So then one of the big things in July 2005, News Corp, which is Rupert Murdoch's company. News Corp. News Corp. um, Bought MySpace for $580 million. Jesus. And at that time, MySpace claimed 22 million members. In September of 2005, it was up to 27 million. And then in August 2006, Google signed a $900 million three-year deal to become the exclusive provider of ad sales for the site. Now, here's the problem. Many believe that this was a huge factor in the downfall of MySpace. Because while that $900 million is a huge, huge monetary windfall, it basically forced MySpace to crowd in even more advertisement advertisement, yes, uh, into what was already becoming pretty overloaded. Because like you mentioned, there are all these like animations, the music played every time you loaded it up. Yeah. And also now it's flooded with ads. So it became so slow to load. Remember, this was 2006. This was not like high speed internet. Well, so beca- well, yeah, a lot of people still had DSL. Probably a fair amount of people actually still had 56k. Yeah, and I, then you had some with cable modems and like T1s. But you're right; like it was a lot slower on average. And so, like, basically, you'd load up, and it started to get slower and slower. And here, creeping up behind it, is the Facebook, right? So then. Um, so then in November 2006, Rupert Murdoch announced that he believed MySpace could be worth as much as $6 billion and that it would have as many as 200 million users by 2007. Then into in May 2007, MySpace purchased PhotoBucket for $250 million. And then in 2008, June 2008, Facebook passed MySpace in terms of users. It's like 10,000 spoons yeah. when all you need is a knife. So then this is basically that point is where it all starts to go pretty downhill. Um, you started to lose a lot of their executives. Um, and then in June 2009, uh, just about a year after Facebook passed them, MySpace laid off 30% of its staff, going from 1,420 employees down to 1,000. Um, the international staff was decreased by down to one-third um, and also just like an indicator of how much they were hemorrhaging money in November, 2009, MySpace was paying $1 million per month in rent for a space, uh, that they never moved into. Um, wow. And this story that I'm reading this from this timeline, this is from the Atlantic.com. It was published in 2011, so it doesn't go much past there, but basically in January, 2011, they laid off another 500 employees, which was 50% of its remaining workforce. Um, yeah, so basically it just seems like there was... A, okay, so at its height, um, to give you an idea of this comparison, at its height in December 2008, MySpace attracted 75.9 million monthly unique visitors, right? Mm-hmm. Right now, um, Facebook has 1.19 billion monthly active users. And fully half of them are trying to illegally join the tr- the trends like these Facebook appreciation group, even though they're a fake account. That's yeah. a real stat. So, uh, that's true that half, half of that 1.2 billion. But I think that's the thing is like, here's something to think about, right? Every time Facebook does something, for example, the new like buttons, which I think are absolute garbage, but every time they do something new, they're trying to update. They're trying to grow. They're trying to keep up with what people want. And there's something to be said. People are always like, quit changer. I like the way it was. And it's like, yeah, that's because you're now the 30-year-old consumer, and they're trying to convince 12-year-olds to join Facebook. I mean, the thing is that, like, you got to take the good with the bad. I like the fact that on Facebook now, at least on a Mac, you can drag a picture file from your desktop and just shit it right into the window where you're typing. And it's like, yep, got that picture. Thanks. You can... You know, it's a lot easier in a lot of ways to do what we use Facebook for. And if somebody posts something sad, you can now press the sad button so you're not liking that, you know, their friend died. However, what I don't like about the changes are the ways in which they've made it 
Um, you know, like the fact that when I first started with my Brennel Floss Facebook page, I could reach all of my people that had liked that page with one post. Now it reaches like 7% of your people that like the page for every post, unless you pay more money to promote it. And then if you do that, it says the word promoted. So you look like a tool. I mean, you know, you got to take the good with the bad. There's a lot of good, cool stuff on Facebook that didn't used to be, but they also try to make more money, which kind of makes it ickier. So, but I, I mean, know. if you think about it, just comparatively, the fact that MySpace really peaked like that they were around from 2003 and then by like 2009 were pretty much on the out and then facebook has been around for the last 12 years so like more or less three times as long like I mean, they're yeah, doing facebook something right yeah i think i think um in some ways it's actually the fact that facebook has much more control I don't know how exactly that correlates, but with MySpace, you could make your page look like absolute crap and fill it up with all this stuff. And it would, but like Facebook, you know, you like the things you like, you put your little quote, you put your little picture, you put your little cover image, but it's all kind of to their specifications. And in a way, I actually think, uh, most people prefer the cookie cutters. Uh, they, they prefer, the here's how it's done kind of thing. I think this is part of how cultures and philosophies, even religions and certain ideas that are untrue perpetuate themselves because people just like to follow what everyone does. This is why it's a lot easier. people buy diamond rings for their wives and they don't ask why. And people in Korea think that having a fan on too long poisons the air and they don't ask why. By the way, that's true. Look it up. It's an old wives tale in Korea. Um, you know, well, I, so uh, anyways, that's my space. My face is the, def- MySpace is defunct, and I believe this conversation is as well. But your face is defunct. Is that good? Yes. Okay, so um, I actually wrote down a bunch of like quick fire trends that I don't, I didn't have a quick whole fire, segment for, but quick fire, quick fire trends. And see, it's weird that Travis didn't write the theme song for the show because obviously, what are you talking about? This guy didn't got say talent. anything. This guy's got talent. Oh, oh, was that just the voice in my head that sings me songs like Travis? No, I just wanted people to think that like I dropped it in and that that was like a professionally <laughs> created. Well, yeah, they would have totally bought that if I hadn't said anything. You screwed um, it up again. <laughs> this is another behind the scenes moment here. I hate Brent. Yeah. Brent is a turd. He's a turd in a t-shirt, and I hate him. Hey, hey, I am yes. in a turtleneck. He's a turd in a turtleneck. See how that's so much more literate? I bet he is better. Thank you. Yeah. No, well, I love Brent. I love Brent very much. He's yeah. like uh, my sixth or seventh brother. There you go. My brother, my brother, my brother, my brother, my brother, and Brent. Anyway, so uh, I find it interesting that with the rise of the smartphone... It seems like more and more... More like dumb phone. Am I right? Moving on. Um, It seems like more and more of our functional memory banks, indeed the part of our brains that remembers stuff, more and more of that is external these days for people in the first world that are able to afford that kind of technology. Here's what I mean. As children, Travis, you and I had to remember phone numbers. If we wanted to call our friend on the phone, typically we had to use the landline in the house. We had to remember our friend's number. I still remember my home phone, my grandma's phone number, a couple of close friends, but I've forgotten most of them. Nowadays, you don't need to do that. You just put them in your phone and you find their name. Now, that's a small microcosm for the fact that now, do we really have to remember when what year a certain thing came out? How old a certain well, actor is. Well, you just go I look think, it up on IMDb or Wikipedia and you're done. And there's a very good reason for why we are not as good. I don't think it's like, well, it's because they're rotting our brains. It has to do with the way that you create memories and you move things from short-term to long-term memories. And it comes from, like, having to recall it. And so, like, if you say, like if someone gives you a phone number, right, and they say, like, the number is 555-5123, uh-huh. and you're like, oh, okay, 555-5123. And then you don't say it again. You don't force yourself to recall it again. You're going to remember it for, I think it's something like seven seconds. Yeah, not very long. But like if you then repeat it multiple times and kind of like force yourself to recall it, then you be like, 
I there was a time where I had one of my credit card numbers memorized just because like there used to be a time before you could like check your bank account from your phone like through an app where I had to type in my bank account number on my phone yeah. like when I called to like check over the phone and like I got sick of like having to do it so I just was doing it so mu- much that I remembered it but now it's like saved in my phone app and I don't have to recall the number anymore it so, like, me, my brain isn't forced to remember it. Right. It makes me wonder – I mean, usually my philosophy about life is that human beings don't really change that much. The technology we can use changes, but it just allows us to do more of what we've always been doing. Um, and, you know, the smartphone thing does, in fact, remove some of the onus of us having to remember things. But if you think about it, the printing press – yeah, pretty helpful. And probably a lot of people at the time were like, oh, all these books, take, nobody will need to remember anything because it's take all in it a back book farther. somewhere. When we used to like pass down histories through oral traditions, I bet there was a time that when people started writing it down and the storytellers were like, what are you doing? No, like if you write it down, people won't tell the stories anymore and we'll lose the oral tradition of like passing history from tra- like Anytime there's a new, easier way to do something, it definitely changes the way things are done. That's how it works. When you add cars into the equation, it definitely changed the landscape. When you cha- when you add planes in, you know what I mean? Anytime there's a huge update in technology, it changes the way the world operates. And yet people always have this fear of the unknown that ends yeah. up typically being irrational. Like I actually saw people talking about how there's going to be rampant abuse of the new Facebook emoji like system and i'm like there wasn't rampant abuse when they invented the like button multiple years into facebook yeah the like button wasn't there on day one i mean yeah you could abuse it if you wanted to you could like every one of your own posts and like every one of your friends posts i'm not sure it's really you know what i mean like yeah okay so you put a wow or you put a laughing on somebody's well, you know posting their tragedy that's the same as just being a dick in the comments yeah, and the thing is, is like I think that whenever you change any kind of routine, people do not like it. Like it's just that's that that seems almost universal, you know, just because that idea of like, oh, I was fine with this, I was com-. but then like a year later, you forget that that wasn't always a thing. I remember Instagram, people were trying to be like, you should get on Instagram, and I was like, why? That seems so stupid. And then I started doing it, and now I love it, and I can't imagine not doing. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you know, you're an you're an earlier adopter than me. You got me into Twitter, or you helped get me into Twitter, and you also helped me get into Instagram. Those I dragged my feet on, and you helped me get into Snapchat, which, frankly, I'm not into. I just have it to receive pictures occasionally, yeah. but. Um, I think it's kind of a garbage app. But um, anyway, that was one thing I wanted to talk about. Another thing that I wanted to bring up, and I'm not even sure. That was that, a great, that quick fire that lasted seven minutes. Well, <laughs> we, we're both talkers. What can yeah. I say? Does it seem to you like the amount of time between reboots of movie franchises keeps getting shorter and shorter and shorter? Yes. Like Spider-Man was just a couple of years. Fantastic Four was seven or eight years. The, I mean, I guess the Batman thing doesn't quite count because they're they're doing a different universe. Like well, they've gotten rid of the Nolan and they're bringing in the the Superman Returns universe. It is important to note though that in in the Spider Man they did that as well, where you know the, there was one Spider Man and then they did um, oh what is it, the Amazing Spider Man. And that's not unlike the way that comic books operate, where you have, like, Wolverine and Weapon X and Logan and, like, you have all the different versions of Spider-Man and X-Man and Superman um, running concurrently, you know, that you walk into a store and you're going to see 45 Superman titles at least. I mean, I think that I'm just getting crotchety about the fact that, uh, you know, they're making another Jungle Book. And to be fair, they have not made a live-action Jungle Book in 22 years. But it's like, it just feels too soon. They're, they're making- I, oh, wait. I'm going to stop you, though. Because I feel like this is that same kind of thing where people are like, oh, they're, they're, uh, 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 smartphones are bad and these new apps are... But, like, if you look back at, like, the 30s, how many different versions of, like, the Count of Monte Cristo did they do? How many different versions of, like, the Mummy did they do? How many different versions of the Three Musketeers did they do? 
You know what I mean? This this idea now that like we do one title, we do a Superman movie, and then we can't make another Superman movie for a couple. Like people never used to worry about that. They used to be like, "Hey, I want to make a movie about a bank robbery." Okay, now I want to make another movie about a bank robbery. Okay, like that idea of you you burned out the title doesn't happen. I might be wrong, but I feel like the invention of mass media pop culture has created this echo chamber of. Little by little, the things that are mass produced for in entertainment consumption get to be more and more repetitive. Maybe it's always been that way, and there's just more people doing it now because there's more people in the world. But, you know, even, even with Nintendo, it's like, are, are we really going to remake Ocarina of Time in HD and Wind Waker in HD and Twilight Princess in HD in the span of four years? It just seems See, I think that's I think that's an excellent point. I think there's a difference between I have a different take on how to tell this story and okay, well here's this thing again that will be another $45. Right. And I mean, I guess those are apples and oranges. And you're right, I am kind of being the crotchety like I'm not used to this change, you know, that kind of person. Well, the that difference the important about. the factor is does it suck? Because it's like, okay, well, I liked this version of this thing and then you remade it two years later and it's garbage like why what was it about this that you felt like you need to like change it you know what i mean that's where it bothers me where like for example the harry potter movies i feel like they nailed them you know there's a lot of stuff edited out there's parts where people are like well they cut this character or like they didn't talk about this thing but overall i would say that people were pretty happy with them if they then immediately said now we're gonna do it again it's like, but why? Like you did right. it. It it was done. You you took a thing, you adapted a thing into film, and it was done. It's another to be like, okay, well, we want to tell another story about a boy raised by wolves. And it's like, okay, go for it, whatever. Yeah. Well, okay. So another thing that I wanted to bring up is uh, more of a current trend, and I'm gonna ask, I'm gonna turn it into a question, Travis. Do you think we have reached or are nearing peak beard? Before it starts to go away? That's a good question. Um, Okay. Do you mean as in peak like the size of beards or like peak like the rampantness of popularity? Let me be clear. When I was a kid, when we were kids, beards were what your dad's friends had, the nerdy ones. Or your dad had one in old pictures of himself from college. But beards weren't cool if you were a kid. Not just because you couldn't grow one, but like, you know, it's not like kids' movies had dudes with beards. And if you did, they were the crazy one or the old man or, yeah. Right, right. And now, kind of ushered in by the hipster thing and the lumberjack thing, they're cool again. And honestly, I would have never, I didn't think my beard looked that great, but last year I grew it out and realized, oh, it's a little scraggly, but that's like okay right now. Um, you and- know, I, I, my feeling on it, I live my life as a bearded man. Um, I do not do it because I think it's trendy. I do it because I like having a beard. But I also think that that's probably a thing that most people with beards would say. But if it weren't trendy, would I still have it? I don't know. That's a little bit too in-depth psychologically. But I would say that it probably has to do with the fact that if you if you look at the time period in which beards were for hippies, it was because it was basically you had some young people were hippies and some young people were drafted into the army. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the the line drawn between the two of them. Are you a clean shaven, good American soldier type right. or are you the rebellious hippie type? Right. And so then it became, well, we need to convince people through film and television that the good, clean-shaven, good American type is cool, and the bearded person is crazy, so you see that a lot in the 60s and 70s. And then when you got in the 80s, they weren't trying to prove anything, they just wanted to show as many breasts as they could. Um, But then, like, I think there's a certain amount of not necessarily rebellion, so much as, like, just a loosening of expectations, when you see a lot more tattoos, you see a lot more piercings, you see a lot more beards. The question then becomes... Is there a point at which it's no longer rebellion, it's just people making choices about how they want to look and live their life? 
that it never constricts again, or does the pendulum swing the other way? And when we have kids and when we're grandfathers, is it going to be like, why does grandpa have tattoos and a beard? That's a what crazy I'm person? saying. That's what I'm getting at. I feel like there's so many trends throughout the last 50 or 100 years that people kind of start to go, this is never going to go away. Disco is going to live forever. But or I think 10 but years before that, the twist will never die. But I think that the important factor to keep in mind is, one, I, I heard this on another podcast the other day where they're talking about tattoos as a trend. Tattoos have been going on for a really long time, you guys. And so what it has become is it's become mainstream, widespread, yes. no unstigmatized, destigmatized. But everyone I know that like has a bunch of tattoos, like a full sleeve, didn't do it because it was mainstream. They were able to do it and still get a job because it is now destigmatized. They were able to do it and still go to church because it's destigmatized. I don't think that they became popular, so they sat down and spent thousands of dollars and countless hours to have sure. a full-sleeve tattoo. My you know whole thing what I mean? About, my whole thing about tattoos is this. I, uh, I had the same decoration in my bedroom for like 15 years after... No, not 15, but basically about 10 years after I left high school, my bedroom decoration was still the same. My parents didn't change it. So I'd come home and every year I'd be like, ugh, geez, what a tool I was when I was 18. And the thing is, it got worse and worse every year. What I'm about to say does not apply to everyone. But for me, the fear with the tattoo is that every year I'd get one year farther away from the version of me who would have chosen that tattoo. And that like, how do you pick something that's evergreen for yourself? Clearly, I have got, I have got on my body currently five tattoos. Um, the first one I got 11 years ago. Um, I would still get it today, though probably done by a better person because it did not turn out well and I need to get it redone. But the sentiment remains the same. The fact of the matter is, I think that if you're the type of person who gets a tattoo that, 10 years later you hate then you are probably the type of person who makes mistakes constantly throughout your life that you regret 10 years later <laughs> yeah i mean really think yeah. about it the fact you, that you, you're you worried about it you've diagnosed me perfectly doctor the fact that you're a person who's worried about it enough that you don't have any tattoos now that's like saying hypothetically well what if i stabbed myself and then 10 years later i really like you clearly made the choice that you don't know what tattoo you would get so you wouldn't get a tattoo right so I think that that's the idea of where people are like, I'm just afraid I'd regret it. Like, okay, well, then you don't know the tattoo you want. Right. Well, so um, like, yeah, don't get a kind, tattoo. It's, it's kind of like, you know, I, I don't think I could ever, I don't think I could ever get married to any one person. The answer may, in fact, be you just haven't met somebody you actually want to marry. Or exactly. it might be that you're not into it. But anyway, um, one little fun fact for you regarding beards. According to the International Society of Hair Restoration Surgery, beard transplants went up 250% between 2012 and 2014. Now, an estimated 5% of all hair transplant surgeries are beard transplants. They they take the hair from the back of your scalp because it's the most chin-like, and they, they put it into your patchy beard bits. I, did you see that meme that was going around that was like a dude with a beard, and he kind of looked all outdoorsy and lumberjacky, and it said, like, if you look like this... And don't know how to like chop down a tree or change a tire, shave. Do you see uh, that? I, I've seen stuff like that. That's the fucking stupidest thing I've ever seen. But you know who who's behind that? Some dude that can't grow a beard. Yeah, I mean, it, this idea of like, if you look like that and don't conform to the idea of what I think a person like that should be able to do, then conform yourself to my ideal. It like, really, that's what you're saying. It's like, I look at you and assume this about you, and if I'm wrong, then you tricked me because you look like, hey, it doesn't fucking matter if I have a beard or not. If I want to grow a beard, I can. If I don't want to have a beard, I don't have to. If you propose that me growing a beard is some kind of statement that I'm conveying to you, you're the person who's trying to constrict ideals back to make people be unable to have a tattoo or beard. You're stigmatizing it, and you're saying only certain people should have this thing, and that's never a good way to think. We're here. We're beard. Get used to it. (laughs) 
So as we were talking about like kind of retrospective things, I, I put out on Twitter and Facebook that I was like, hey, what are some, you know, trends from over a decade or so ago that you would like us to talk about? And three of them flooded the discussion. And I was like, oh, shit, yeah. All of these I can relate to on a powerful, powerful old man level. And they are these, Brent. Your Beanie Babies. Mm-hmm. Your Furbies. Oh, yeah. And your Pogs. Yes. So let's wow. talk a little bit about the three of those. First of all, let me give you a little bit of background as to why Beanie Babies were what they were. This blew my mind. I had never looked into it. And now... It all makes so much sense. The creator of Beanie Babies, Ty Warner, um, apparently was a little bit eccentric. Surprise. And a, and a little bit kind of like of a perfectionist. Uh-huh. And so the example it's given, a lot of this information comes from uh, an author named Zach Bissonette, which I might be mispronouncing, but he wrote a book called The Great Beanie Baby Bubble. Um, and basically... Ty, as he would create... So, for example, this is one. He released a royal blue elephant. And then after that had been out, he was like, oh, you know what? I bet this would be more suitable for children if it were a baby blue elephant. So then they stopped producing the royal blue elephant, started producing the baby blue elephant. So now royal blue becomes a collectible. And that was kind of a constant thing. He actually originally released... Or produced nine different types of Beanie Babies. And it was not a success. It actually kind of was a failure at first. But he continued creating them even after people were like, hey, you're like failing. This is nothing. And what happened was he continued to try to refine and update and change the designs of the Beanie Babies. Which meant that in a very short amount of time there was very limited amounts of a lot of different Beanie Babies. Mm -hmm. So then uh, uh, some women throughout the country, and I think specifically in Chicago is, I believe, what uh, Bissonette references, but were like, hey, we're going to put together a full collection of Beanie Babies. And this was like years after he had started creating them. And suddenly realized like, oh, it's, it's really hard to find all of these because so few of them were made. So suddenly it created this awareness of how rare and there and thereby, you know, how um, I was about to say worthful, but I can't think of the opposite of worthless, valuable. There it is. Yeah. These beanie babies were. And so then there starts to be this like rush to get them. And then brilliantly, I would say the beanie baby company, Time Warner, continues to not to be so confused with Time Warner, by yes, the way, Ty, T-Y. Um, would then routinely retire designs. So basically, and big part of this was that they took to the internet. There was actually a time in which 10% of all e-commerce was Beanie Babies. <laughs> I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, like eBay is basically eBay because of Beanie Babies. So it should have been called eBeanie Bay. Yeah. Um, and so what they would do is on the Beanie Baby website at midnight, I believe Eastern Standard Time, they would announce what, you know, a, at a certain day, what was going to be the next retired Beanie Baby. People would like stay up, you know, skip things. Some of the references he makes was like skipping New Year's to find out what. And then they'd rush out to the store, buy all the Beanie Babies of that type on the shelf. Wait a couple days, wait a couple weeks for them to be like a demand, like, oh, they're all sold out of blah, blah, blah. And then they would sell them back in some cases for a thousand percent markup. I mean, so they know, buy a five five dollar Beanie Baby and then sell it on eBay for five thousand dollars. My 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 dad collected Beanie Babies and my sister was really into them as a kid. And so it was partially her asking for all the Beanie Babies for Christmas and partially my dad being you know, like, what's what's a nice word for hoarder? He was really into collecting stuff. Um, Aggressive collector. There you go. Um, and, and he's a great dude, but he's got two storage spaces that are garage-sized full of all this stuff to this day. Um, and uh, to me, I just go, if you, I, I guess I just don't have the gene that makes me go, ah, oh, this thing must be really valuable, because it seems like now people have such short attention spans if you go looking for collectible Beanie Babies today, if I'm not mistaken, they're actually worth a lot less than they were expected they're, to be by now. Brent, they're worthless. That's what I'm saying. They're more or less like 
worthless, like cents on the dollar from the original five dollar asking price. Right. Um, I mean, it's it's like it's like uh you know baseball cards are one thing, but I guess I just feel like well, the thing to keep in mind when it comes to collectibles is they're only as worth as much as people are willing to pay for them. Right. So there is no inherent value to baseball cards or comic books or anything like that. Like, if you think about comic books as a great example, right? If you started collecting them after it was acknowledged by everyone how much money could be available in collecting comic books and you hadn't collected before that, it was pointless. Like, if you hadn't been collecting comic books since day one... You know what I mean? There's yeah. a certain amount of like, well, if everyone's collecting, it means they're not collectible because they're so widespread and no one's looking for them. Right. They're only worth as much as people who are willing to pay for them. So there was actually, I found this interesting, in 1999, Jeffrey White, a career criminal from West Virginia, shot and killed a co-worker at a lumberyard over an argument of uh, about Beanie Babies. Jesus. There were um, recorded divorce cases in which the proceedings involved dividing up the beanie baby collection between the two spouses irreconcilable beanies is there the were people term. who lost their life savings there were people who spent their kids college tuitions because everyone believed that these things were just going to continue to grow in value no it's like look you know if you're this kind of person and you're young here's an idea instead of collecting that kind of stuff just collect money Collect interest. Collect gold if you have to. But think about that. Okay, but think about it this way. We're all a little bit spoiled on it now looking back, right? But if you think about it at the time where this was like the late 1990s, mid-1990s, there wasn't as much widespread news about like collectors losing their shirts on things. We think about this now because of Beanie Babies. We were all educated about this idea of like a collectible bubble that really wasn't a thing unless you were like already a collector of something beanie babies really kind of were the first huge kind of collectible bubble that affected outside of just collectors of comic books and trading cards and that kind of thing this was like everybody had beanie babies and there was a point at which 60 percent of all homes had at least one beanie baby in it Jeez, that's huge and then suddenly like uh, seemingly overnight one day they went out, collected all the Beanie Babies that were going to be retired, went home, waited a couple weeks, and then nobody wanted them. And right. all of a sudden, people had storage units. They had Tupperware containers full of worthless, nothing Beanie Babies. At this point, the as of 2015, the most valuable Beanie Baby is the employee bear, green or red ribbon, um, worth $2,000 to $3,000. Which sounds like a lot, but if you think about the fact that this is the most valuable bear right. now, and it's only worth you know three thousand dollars at most, how much would it have been worth in like nineteen ninety eight? Yeah. Um, and as you go through this, I mean, like the fifteenth most valuable Beanie Baby is like two hundred dollars. So, like, still comparatively, and that's fifteen out of like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of right, and right. they were everywhere like everyone had them and thought they were they were like stockpiling gold bars so that's beanie babies let's talk about furbies now furbies is an interesting one because they're not really defunct they've actually recently had a fairly huge kind of redesign comeback really yeah it's not it's nowhere near what it is now i remember uh, the Christmas that Beanie, that furry, Furbies were, uh, and I'm going to apologize mean, in advance. You mean it's nowhere near how it was when they came out. Yeah, the fervor that when they came out. I'm going to. The, um, the fervor. I'm going to apologize in advance as we talk about Furbies for how often I'm going to uh, accidentally call them furries. But just know that I mean Furbies. I'm just. Yeah, that's I a different mumble. episode. Um, but so when Furbies came out, I remember it being like. You could not find them in stores. They were like Tickle Me Elmo level of like Griffin wanted one and my parents had to search for like months to find one. And weren't there like huge unfulfilled promises of what these things were supposed to be able to do? Indeed there were, Brent. We all believed that it was early artificial intelligence. Seriously. Like honestly, if you if you applied the Siri technology we have now to a Furby, it could probably learn quite a bit. But at the Well, but that's the difference is we were told that they learned, not just that they knew things, because that's kind of the difference between Siri and what we were promised was, is that you were raising your Furby. Right. 
that you taught them to speak English, that they learned your voice, that they, you know, you could teach them to say certain words. But that was all pre-programmed. All of that was horseshit. It was all in there. And they were also creepy as all get out. <laughs> kind of like a little baby Five Nights at Freddy's monster. Yeah. <laughs> I I would say that they were creep. Okay. Creep level was um somewhere between my buddy and a Teddy Ruxpin whose batteries were running down. I didn't find my buddy that creepy. Well, maybe not maybe not at first, but then when your older brother sets it up in your closet so that when you open the closet, he seems to dive out at you, it really changes your perception of my buddy. That seems possibly contextual to your life. I'm not it sure, was, but it, it seems... did It did happen. Ah, and then my older brother just kept moving my buddy around to different places in the house. And eventually I had to get rid of my buddy. It creeped me the shit out. Um, but <laughs> I think that was the thing is that it had a point where everybody was promised this like magical electronic pet. And then once you got it and you were just like, oh, okay, well, this is what it does. It just does this. I'm incredibly bored with it now. And there's yeah. not a lot of replay value, collectible value. I'm sure there were people who collected Furbies, but it wasn't like, well, this Furby is different from this Furby in anything other than appearance. Like, they were all pretty much the same thing. So once you had one Furby, it wasn't like you were like, now I have to get all of them. Yeah. So it was kind of like they kind of painted themselves into a corner a little bit, because if you think about it, once they had your money for one, that was it. You weren't going to do it again. Oh, Furbies. Um, But... My favorite of all the collectibles of our childhood has to be Pogs. Were you big into Pogs? I had, I think I had like a foot long tube. I think you could measure enthusiasm by how long your longest collector's tube of Pogs were. Should we explain? I I, I bet you we could honestly have some some near grown up listeners that don't even know firsthand what Pogs are. Well, let me give you the background. So basically, Pog stands for passion fruit orange and guava and basically it came from they were little cardboard circles that were the lids of juice containers in hawaii and then a game developed out of them um and then i don't know what that game was because that's not important because then what developed was the actual game which is you would stack them up and you would slam a slammer onto them and any of them that you flipped over, you got to keep. So you and your friends or enemies or acquaintances would kind of stack yours together. And at the end, you kept the ones that you flipped. Can I be honest? I think I played the game once or twice in my entire Pog career. I just collected them because I liked them. I had one that said, who farted? I had one that was in the shape of a ninja star. I had a lot of yin-yang, happy face ones. There was a time at which I, no lie, would guesstimate that I owned 75,000 Pogs. Um, it was a big thing. My schoolyard, we would play Pogs every day until eventually they had to institute a rule that it was gambling and we weren't allowed to do it anymore. And there was like a crackdown. And if teachers saw like more than two people huddled around, they would come over and break up your Pog playing. I collected so many slammers. I had one that was a metallic Wolverine slammer that looked like he was like cutting through the Pog with his claws or the slammer. And if you don't know, a slammer is like a Pog, but it's usually plastic or glass and it's significantly thicker. I had a lot of metal ones. Metal ones as well. It's thicker. It's like the thickness of uh, maybe like half a centimeter to a centimeter. Yeah, and they varied. I mean, basically it was a weighted thing that you would slam down onto a stack of Pogs. And the, the collectible nature of them was insane. And, and there was a certain point, I remember in like 1994, 95, where it was like, if, if, if it was a pop culture thing in any way, there was a Pog version of it. Oh, yeah. And like to the point where like companies that you would never think of were like branding themselves on Pogs. You know, like you would find ev- everything on Pogs. And you not like only our that, life insurance company? Would you like one of our jelly slammers? IHOP had a special run of Pogs and a slammer that you could only get at IHOP. So, wow. like, yeah, it was crazy. And not only that, I was watching a video earlier today before we recorded of this woman going through, like, her box of slammers. And it's such an encapsulation of, like, 
our aesthetic in the 90s because it's so many like skeletons holding eight balls and like it was scrawled poison across in like shiny letters and like the weirdest like but also like i'm looking at it going yeah like that's that was everywhere like there was, this idea of like it was kind of gritty and it's the 90s it was like grunge but also there was like leftover 70s stuff like yeah. happy face yin yang peace sign black light activated pogs it was like suddenly all the people from the 60s 70s and 80s were thrown into a centrifuge and like the designs that came out were what would left over and everybody <laughs> was cool with it and i had so brent so many of them I don't know how much money young Travis invested into Pogs, but it was far too much. What was cool about them, too, is you could go to a shop and buy them for, like, you know, a nickel. Yeah. Because they, weren't, they were they, so they cheap never, to make. And that's the thing is, unlike Beanie Babies, there was never a, well, if you really want to be serious about them, you're going to have to invest them. You could go and those plastic tubes, we talked about the storage tubes, you could just buy, like, a grab bag tube. And, like, they would just hand you one full of, like, a thousand pogs. And the the fun thing was is at a certain point, especially once they were so ubiquitous, it no longer was about if you actually cared what was on the pog. It was just having a lot of them. So, like, I, I never remember being like, well, I only care about Marvel characters, so I'm only going to have Marvel pogs. I had, like, Spawn pogs, and when I was a kid, I knew nothing about Spawn. But it was just the thing that I had because I just had pogs. I yep. actually, as we were researching this and talking about it, I actually think that the world is ready for a Pog rebirth. I mean, it's simple. It's so marketable. And, like, I feel like the world is ready for more Pogs. Um, I feel like Pokemon is taking up the mantle. I think Pokemon's found a way to make a video game version and a card game version of collect all this stuff and trade when you play. I wish I just kept collecting Pogs. Honestly, it's a real regret I have. Like, I don't have a collection as a human being. Like, I always wanted to. And I think the closest I ever came was Pogs. But then, you know, I became a man and I put away such childish things. Yeah. What was that, two, three years ago? Yeah. So, yeah, that's going to do it for us um, for our bonus episode. Thank you again for donating to MaximumFun.org. If you listen to this and you donated because of trends like these, make sure you let us know so we can thank you. Um, and if you're listening to this while the Max Fun Drive is still going on and you have friends that you know listen to the show, please tell them to donate or just go on Twitter and say, just listen to the trends like these um, bonus episode. It was so good. Everyone should donate. So you know, this is our first year and we really need the help and support, but Hey, we're not going to bug you too much about it because you already gave us help and support. So thank you so much for listening. Brent, thank you for joining me. Thank you for being joined by me. Have a great day. And we'll talk to you, I guess, next max fun drive. See you next time. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.